Hello, welcome to this week's edition of Sony Music's Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. This week, we're doing a deep dive on a very special Australian song, Down Under from Men at Work. Remarkable. The song was written by two men to entertain 50 drunks in a local pub. Two years later, they're number one on both sides of the Atlantic. They're number one again in Australia. The song, as we know, soundtracks the America's Cup. The band won Grammy Awards, met all their heroes. But such is the nature of um, pop stardom. You know, the band fades. They break up eventually. Although Colin Hay tells us here he never actually left the band. And here we are 40 years later talking about this seminal Australian song. Uh, it's known all around the world. It's brought Colin joy, some heartache, as he explains during the course of this interview. And more than anything else, it's brought him this. Freedom to continue being an artist and write songs and record songs, down under being the biggest song I've ever been involved with, it has enabled me to be able to not you know, have to be a waiter or do another job. So that's a big thing. So in that regard, I have huge respect for it because I, I don't take money for granted. It's having something that has connected with most of the world. It's in a lot of people's DNA. It's in their psyche. Even if they don't know the song, they know the song. Whether it's in Melbourne or whether it's in, in La Paz and Bolivia, they know the song. It's worldwide. It's global. So in that sense, I feel connected to the world through that song. And I don't think there's anything more powerful than that. Here Colin explains what it was like working with his co-writer, Ron Streichart. He used to give me little cassette tapes of demos that he'd done. And they were very, very good and very intriguing. And one of them was this little percussion and bass thing, which just kept repeating over and over. In the start of the recorded version of Down Under, it has this little drum fill at the start of the song, which goes, dum, dum, tukatum, tukatum, which Ron had various levels of liquid or water in different glasses or, or bottles. And he had this little groove going, which was doing tukatum, tukatum, it just kept repeating. It was kind of quite trance-like. And I used to play it over and over because I thought that there was something there. And, and for a few weeks before that, I had this phrase, which was living the land down under, and I would just say it and go, well, I wonder what that is. And one day I was driving down Power Street in Hawthorne, and I was playing Ron's little track. And I just started singing living in the land down under over the top of it just kept singing it over and over again until i got home so that stayed with me overnight and then the next morning i just uh, wrote out the song uh, pretty much pretty quickly in about in about 40 minutes wrote the words the verses and choruses to it I felt that there was a plundering of the country uh, for short-term gains, whether it was cutting down old-growth forests or desecration of you know, coastal lands and so forth. You know what it's like? There's this kind of strange desire or need. Or I don't know whether it's inbuilt, but people feel this need to follow some umbilical cord to somewhere. Most of the time, it's back to Britain. But some people get waylaid in places like India, Goa. A lot of my friends were hippies, and so they followed that kind of hippie trail and went up to those parts of the world. And I think it's like some strange rite of passage where if you live in Melbourne, you just kind of wake up one day and suddenly go, oh, I think I'll go north and um, head off. And some return and some do not. A friend of mine went to Brussels. He went into a bread shop and attempted to speak French. And the guy was from Brunswick in Melbourne. So he was busy trying to speak French, and the guy said, "Oh, I'm from I'm from where you're from, mate. You know, I'm from I'm from Brunswick." So that's just where the idea from buying from bread from a man in Brussels. 
mainly on a Thursday night, we would play at the Cricketers Arms in Richmond. We would play Beatles songs and Bob Dylan songs and Ry Cooter songs and John Martin songs. And occasionally we would put in these songs that we had written. And one of the songs was Down Under. This was before Men at Work was formed. I remember playing it one night. And um, the next week we played, this older guy came up to us and said, Mike, play that song you played last week, Mike. That, something about Down Under. He said, that's a good song. That'll do well, that song. And that was the first time that anyone had requested an original song by us. And then when Men at Work formed, you know, it became a very strong part of our set. But it wasn't really the standout song that it became it was you know we were like a, a jam band in a way we would play the song it was about five or six minutes long and uh, within that was the song that people know it was just a bit more jammy let's put it like that and then um we came to record the song uh but when we, when we played the song live and peter mckee and the record producer came to see us in um i think it was the Mansell room in sydney you know he got it straight away and uh, when we went into the pre-production before we recorded a business as usual that the the record you know he whipped it into shape very quickly and very very suddenly became a very strong and, and powerful uh, you know pop song that had a that, that had that anthem-like quality that, that people associate with the song. As a, an acoustic duo to 20 or 30 people to uh, two years later, we were playing to a couple of thousand people. And then three years later, we were playing to about 150,000 people. So it was a, quite a short period of time between the inception of the song and um, world domination, so to speak. Uh, who could it be now as number one in the US and different parts of the world? So who could it be now as a really, really strong song for us? It's certainly, in my mind, just as strong as Down Under during that time because of the fact that we toured with Fleetwood Mac and that was a song that went to number one, which really exploded the band here in the US. We'd done well in other parts of the world. Who could it be now is really the song that, that broke our band. You know, Down Under was the one that came in after that, which really followed it up in a, in a huge way and um, really kind of knocked down all the barriers. So the combination of those two songs was undeniable. I always believed in the song. I always thought it was a very, very strong. And when we recorded it in the studio, when we listened back to it, you know, we got chills and we got goosebumps and we thought this is going to be incredible what we've recorded here. I have a beautiful relationship with the song because the song lives inside me. The song is not song's not outside of me. It's 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 internalized. So it's a part of who I am. I have a different relationship to the song from everyone else, you know. I like the way it was used in the America's Cup because it was used to scare the Americans when they were preparing for the cup and they would get up in the morning to do some trial runs and, and practice the racing and so forth, the Australian crew of the yacht would play the song at very, very loud volume to scare the Americans, and it did. It frightened them. So I really liked that, the, the way that it it was initially used, you know, and then everybody kind of, you know, made a claim for it. The Bond people or the people that were running the, running the whole thing were, it was synonymous with the America's Cup uh, down under, but it was initially a very, very innocent and uh, kind of a cool way that it came to be like that, you know. But as far as the America's Cup itself, the song, I think, was a hit again in Australia. And I think Australians felt, you know, we had done something which was quite a difficult thing to do which was to beat the Americans at their own game from a somewhat, you know, lowly position, if you like, of, of, of being on the other side of the world and having much less um, capital involved in whatever the process was of, of running a yacht race, you know. But I think for other people in Australia, and especially people traveling, say, overseas, it was, I guess, some kind of step towards a feeling about who we are.
you know, which was, I think, a good feeling, a feeling about celebration. I mean, some people like to wave a flag with it and put all kinds of those connotations on it, which I don't particularly relate to. But ultimately, it is a song about celebration, but perhaps not the most obvious um, kind of celebration. It's more a celebration of, of spirit, I would say, more than anything else. We did something which very few other people get to do, which was we had phenomenal success, the first album they had. So it was ridiculous. Having said that, we were always very ambitious. We always wanted to have international success. And so we tried to take it in our stride. We tried to deal with it as best we could, you know. I met an enormous amount of people during that time. We won a Grammy and all that kind of thing. But it's just, it's just, it's too much, you know. It's it's not like um, everyone wants an anecdote about something funny that happened and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's more than that, you know. It's it's difficult to put into words. It, there's there's always a, there's a, there's an awful lot of sadness when I think about men at work, you know, me personally, because of the fact that even then, um, you know, there were cracks in the band, and it wasn't it was it was not to last very long, you know. So here we are having an amazing success with our first record, and uh, I knew that it wasn't wasn't really going to go the distance. It wasn't really going to last that much longer, you know. It was um, not all roses, you know. I actually never left Men at Work. I, I, in a sense, I'm still in Men at Work, and I always will be in a way, but I never left the band. You could say everyone left me, and you could, in fact, make an argument for that. The rhythm section was sacked. Jerry and John got sacked at the end of 83 or the beginning of 84 because it turned into Spinal Tap. You don't think it is, but, but most bands do turn into ridiculous um, inability to communicate what are not particularly great problems, you know, but um, men have, as a rule, especially in the 20s, have a, have a really a limited ability to communicate with one another. And then Ron never really particularly cared for Men at Work all that much, you know, he didn't, he liked, he liked what we did before Men at Work better. So he just got sick of it, I think. And during the third album, he just said to me one day, we're in the studio out there in Melbourne, and he just said, oh, I think I'll go home. And I said, oh, you're going to come back? And he said, no, nah, I don't think so. So he just went home and he never came back. That was the third record. And then um, it was just all just left Greg and I. When the third al album came out and did nothing, uh, Greg said, oh, this is, I've had enough, you know. So he just, he just left. There was no band ready to leave anymore. And then once the band was gone, I kind of realized that I really didn't want to be in a band anyway anymore. I, I really, my natural game, I think, was really to just be by myself. So I felt quite comfortable about that. I mean, there was, there was kind of emotion involved and it was, it was, you know, we, we could have done more. That's just wasn't the way the cards fell, you know. As Colin explains, the band in Mildura at the Bridge Hotel was so popular, men at work held the record for attendance there. So popular, they had to extend the stage. When he went back as a solo artist, it was a very different story. Then I went back a few years later, and I also held the, re I held the record for the least number of people there because um, the band had broken up and there was very little name recognition, so I, I went there and played, and it was a bit of a depressing gig. But after the show, I was backstage, and a drunk guy came in and said, "Mate, you know, you played that song that Dan Under, you played that better than the original." You know, it, it had gone up and down, and and then um, an indigenous guy came in, an Aboriginal man, and said to me, um, "Where's your dance, mate?" You know, and I said, "What's that?" He said, "You've got to find your dance," and I said. I used to like your dance. You've lost your dance. You've got to find your dance. And I knew exactly what he meant. You, know, you can call it mojo or you can call it whatever you like. But whatever I had, I'd lost. And I had to I had to find it again. So and a lot of that had to do with addiction and, and, uh, and so forth. But And uh, so that was the journey that, that I then went on, which was to, you know, get um, stop drinking and become who I, you know, who I wanted to be, you know, which was not that that guy. 
there's no secrets about the court case. I mean, everyone has an opinion about it, but there's no there's no particular secrets or any great mystery about it. You know, it was there were two lines of kookaburra sits in the old gum tree, unconsciously appropriated by Greg in the flute line and down under, which he played once uh, during the song when we would play it live, and then when we recorded the song, the producer said, "Play that line at the front of the song," uh, because originally there was a bass line at the, at the start of the song, which didn't really work, and so. You know, he'd done the same thing with Hook and Bina, moved the saxophone to the front of the song, which made it much more recognizable and immediate. Was as soon as you hear the dum dum ba ba da 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 ba ba da, you knew what it was. Whereas before, it used to that line never came in until halfway through the song. The same thing with with Down Under. There used to be a bass line at the start playing one da dum 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 dum, diddle diddle dum 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 dum. And uh, he said, well, that flute line you play halfway through the song, play it up the front. So Greg played it. And he said, I'll put it in the other chorus. And then, you know, in 20 minutes later, you move on. And because it was kind of part of a four-line flute line, uh, you know, subsumed within the framework of the song. And so we never, ever realized what it was, which people, you know, find difficult to, to fathom. But that's that's the truth of it. The ludicrousness of it also is the fact that as if we would, you know, write a song like Down Under and then kind of go, oh, let's take two bars of this other song and put it in our song. It just doesn't make any sense, you know, to do it consciously. So appropriation is not a defense. And so we tried to say, well, you know, you've got to look at the two songs. You have to listen to Down Under and no one, no, it'd, be, it'd become subsumed within the framework of the new song. No one noticed it for 27 years. It's not those two bars anymore. It's something else. Tip of the hat, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they just stuck to their argument, which was kind of, in a sense, a great argument. They said, look, you took 25% of our song because Kookaburra is only four bars long. So we didn't take any lyrics, and but there were two bars that existed. And so they said, well, you took 25% of the song. So in a sense, the judge, although I think he was pretty limited in his musical knowledge, uh, felt like he had to give them something. So he gave them 5% of the, um, the Men at Work version of the song. Didn't give them any of the copyright of the song. Just gave them a 5% income flow from the, from the Men at Work version of the song. So he gave them the least amount that he possibly could. But the main reason we we had to defend it was that they demanded they wanted 60% of Down Under, which was a very, very cynical thing that they, and it was just the greed of a corporation uh, and, and individuals within that corporation. So that's why we had to defend it. It ended up costing about four and a half million dollars and uh, they won their 5% of the Men at Work version of the song. And in the end, they were awarded about a hundred grand. So it was four and a half million dollars chasing a hundred thousand dollars. So I guess the lesson of it is really that if you can possibly settle and not go to court, you're much better off doing that because it's just a lot of money paid. They won, but they didn't really win. They just lost less than us, you know. But the real the real loss of it was the fact that I think it added to the conditions and circumstances that led up to, to Greg's death, which um, he wasn't in fabulous shape before that. But it, it was certainly a, a horrible thing to happen to him because he wasn't sued. Um, I was sued, and EMI Music Publishing was sued, but I was personally sued, but he wasn't. Uh, so he felt enormous guilt that he had played the line of, in the song. The relationship that I have with the song is clean. By that, I mean that I took nothing from anyone when I wrote the song. You know, the song is the song is beautiful. It's pure. It's, it's, a, it's a creation and always will be. I remember playing in the jungles of Brazil during the court case. We played 
to about 15, 20,000 people. It was in the middle of nowhere. And these indigenous dancers got up during Down Under and played. I don't know whether they were aware of the song or not, but they did this dance and it was incredibly powerful. When I came back in to, to sing the third verse, they just kind of le they stepped back and they just kind of turned to me and they just went, <gasps> and they gave me this kind of energy. And I felt like I'd lifted up two feet into the air. And then I just thought about the court case and I just thought, you know, they can't touch this. This is something, it has nothing to do with money and, and uh, legal wranglings. This is about something that exists creatively. And um, so I felt just fine about uh, my relationship with the song and, and always will. Thanks to Colin Hay. And thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Sony Music's Time to Talk. We look forward to seeing you back here next week.